Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning for me in California, we have with us Dr. Glenn Elmers. Thank you for being here, Glenn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. Glenn, you're joining us from the East Coast. Is that correct? Yes, I was in Washington, D.C. for a long time and recently bought a house in West Virginia, which I'm finding very oh, pleasant. That sounds great. Yeah. Is, it, is it a rural area? We're, it's what's called the, uh, the panhandle. So about an hour and a half outside of D.C., not too far, but oh. far, far enough. <laughs> far enough. Perfectly said. I brought Glenn on, um, and I, you know, I say Glenn, this is the first time I've met him, but um, uh, I was calling Philip Hamburger Philip uh, earlier today, and I, I don't know him. And, but, and he's um, much more distinguished than I am. So, <laughs> um, so my, my head is a little bit still in administrative law from the early part of the uh, morning. Uh, uh, Philip and I started at, at seven, so we were, we went a, went a while, a while, and we had a wonderful time. But but Glenn has written this book called "The Soul of Politics," and for those of you who can't uh, watch with uh, watch us on YouTube, I'm holding up a, a copy of the book. Its subtitle is "Harry v. Jaffa and the Fight for America." It's got a forward by Larry Arn, and it's published by Encounter Books. Right. Delightful book. It's a heavy book, which I love. It's a hardcover. I love hardcovers. It's got a wonderful little jacket there. And um, it's about, well, I guess <laughs> he's your intellectual grandfather, or actually father, right? You studied under him, right? I did. He had retired, but he was still very active and still very much teaching informally. I was working at the Claremont Institute and he had an office there and he would come by. And a lot of us who were graduate students at the time would go to his lair in the basement of the library. He, he took over, there was some space in the basement of the library where various faculty were allowed to have study carols. And he has just sort of mm -hmm. uh, assimilated the entire space to himself. <laughs> and uh, he, would, he would conduct informal seminars for, for those of us who were in the grad, graduate program, which was just delightful. This guy, I, I, I met him a couple of occasions. Um, he's my intellectual grandfather. I'm on this quest to understand my intellectual heritage. I know it's not exactly, you know, the genetic analogy isn't really apt in some ways but no analogy is perfect but um <clears throat> my was mentored by michael yulman for a decade and michael studied with him mike did and uh we lost mike too young i uh, he and suddenly um but uh so when i saw this book about jaffa i jumped at it because i was like okay i want to understand how Mike was molded and, and what character this was. I've met him a few times, Jaffa, saw him around Claremont and he was, I knew him as a spirited, um, extremely opinionated <laughs> man with a highly energetic, right. like an athlete, like he was an athlete. I, I actually think he could probably have kicked my ass. <laughs> <laughs> <At some point. laughs> and um 
And he went to box at Yale. This was yeah. back in the 1940s. <laughs> tough guy. And yeah. tough mentally, tough physically. Right. Um, but also there was something about him that was charming. Um, he was and- incredibly he was incredibly kind to his students. He would beat the stuffing out of other scholars and intellectuals with whom he disagreed but was unfailingly con- he would have never in a million years humiliated a student or embarrassed a student he always made time for students but then would turn around and just punch the daylights uh, out of other other intellectuals so he had that that great combination that sounds lovely what i love about this book is <clears throat> the details Cause I'm a detail guy. I love a lot of people leave details out because they think people get bored, but this has is chocked full of details and it's the kind of thing that historians very helpful to historians later and just people trying to figure out later what happened. I mean, people a hundred years from now, let's say that people aren't totally insane hundred years from now, the goal of this podcast in part is not just for people now, but for, for an archive for people later so that people later when they, if maybe they only have digital archives, I mean, that would really suck. That'd be horrible, but maybe they, maybe that's a big part of how they know about the past. I want them to understand what our time was like and who were the major uh, movers and shakers. Um, so how did you get interested in writing this book? I mean, I feel like I already know the answer, but just for, for our audience. Sure. Uh, so combination of things. So uh, Jaffa passed away in 2015 um, and his papers had been acquired by Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, who had also been a student of Jaffa and uh, my boss at the Claremont Institute before Larry went to take over Hillsdale. And uh, the papers were there and they were being cataloged. And I was working at the time in the federal government. I had come over as a political appointee, uh, working for the second Bush uh, administration. And you know, I was sort of wondering if I wanted to stay with the government. And um, I was sort of casting about uh, maybe some th- things to do. And I, I knew about these Jaffa papers. And I thought, well, no one's really looked into these. And Professor Jaffa had, been, had passed away a few years over. And I thought, well, maybe someone should do something with this. And I concocted this idea and I approached Hillsdale and they were very cooperative and gave me access and encouraged the project and even uh, helped fund me a little bit. Uh, and luckily for me, no one had done it. I mean, there's another book by Steve Hayward, who's a friend of mine, comparing Jaffa and Walter Burns, uh, but that's a much more focused book. And so I thought, well, someone should do this. And, and I took a year off and I wrote the whole book and did interviews and traveled and everything in exactly one year and uh, made great use of the archives. Jaffa was an incredibly prolific letter writer and there's mm-hmm. thousands of letters in the archives. And I got to look at a lot of them and, and cite a lot of them, which really added, I think some color and, and as you say, detail to the book. Um, and so I'm, yeah. I was grateful for the opportunity and I was glad to be the first one to do it. <laughs> the, yeah, and it, um... <clears throat> It's a, it's a theoretical book as well. I mean, it, maybe that's just the nature of the, the subject that you have. Jaffa was a political philosopher. How would you describe Jaffa to people that never have heard of him? You know? Sure, sure. So it's, you sort of have to back up and say 
uh, two sentences or so about Jaffa's teacher, who was the extremely influential uh, and brilliant uh, refugee from Nazi Germany named Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss, in a way, was probably the most brilliant political philosopher of the 20th century. Uh, and in a way, um, my usual line is to say he almost single-handedly revived the serious study of classical political philosophy, not as something merely of antiquarian interest, right? What did these dead Greek white males think? But to read Plato and Aristotle as sources of, of enduring truth, of real wisdom. Uh, that idea was rejected by all the intellectuals of the 20th century. It's still rejected today. But there's now a real revival and a real serious study of the whole Western philosophic tradition. And that's largely due to Leo Strauss. And Jaffa was one of Strauss's first students. He encountered uh, Strauss at the New School for Social Research in New York in the 1940s before Strauss went off to Chicago. And Jaffa took this lesson about the enduring wisdom of political philosophy and then applied it to America. And Jaffa is probably the most famous student of Strauss to have applied the study of political philosophy to understanding the American regime and the philosophical basis of America. And that's what I try to bring out in the book. One of the things I often say yeah. is the country is obviously in a crisis. A lot of people see that. And so we're confronting again, these very fundamental questions, you know, essential questions about human nature, about mm -hmm. what it means for human beings to be political. What is the purpose of politics? Where do things like equality and consent and sovereignty come from? And Jaffa explains all that in, in I think a very helpful way which is especially useful right now. Absolutely. Going back to Strauss, I love that you introduced Strauss in the context of Nazi Germany, um, <clears throat> fleeing totalitarian tyranny. Right. Um, do you think that that experience was... Um, a major shaper, shaper to his approach to ancient philosophy? Yes, yeah, so Strauss was an incredibly potent and uh, you might even say strident critic of what he contemptuously referred to as value-free social science, right? Mm. The idea nowadays in probably 90% of the academy is there's facts and there's values. Right. And you, you can't get from one to the other. And all values are subjective or arbitrary. You know, relativism is the term probably most people associate with this. Mm -hmm. um, and politics has always envied the exactitude and the precision and the quantitative quality of natural science. And so politics, certainly in the 20th century and even to some degree today, abandoned any idea of explaining justice, abandoned any reference to right and wrong, abandoned the idea of what makes good politics. In, in trying to imitate quantitative natural science. And, and, and Strauss had utter contempt for this and pointed out that when faced with the greatest barbarism, the greatest tyranny in the history of the world, political scientists had nothing to say. Oh. They were useless in the face wow. of Nazi and Soviet tyranny. And Strauss thought- That's that a really deep point. Yeah. And this is why Strauss said, we have to go back and, and take politics seriously, go back and study the origins of politics, and, and make it useful to human life. <laughs> wow. There's so much there. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. There's so much there. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm, I'm taking this in that Strauss is my great grandfather intellectually. Right. He influenced Jaffa. Jaffa 
was a major influence on on my training uh, indirectly through Michael Yulman and and others actually too. Um, so I'm I'm um, <clears throat> yeah I'll tell I'll tell a little story when I was at Claremont. Um, I was having a conversation with, I don't, I don't know if he's still there, uh, a philosopher there. He was one of my professors, Charles Young, I believe mm-hmm. his name is. He's an Aristotle scholar. Um, he was battling cancer at the time. That was about 10, over, that was about 10 years ago, I guess. Anyway, um, I'm pretty sure I have this right. Yeah. Um, we we talked about studying philosophy at Claremont in the politics and policy side, mm-hmm. not the philosophy department. But so there's this kind of this turf war um, <laughs> of philosophers. Um, I taught philosophy for 15 years in philosophy departments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was uh, I, I kind of know about this turf war from the inside because um, uh, some philosophy departments, not all, but some philosophy departments um, are kind of snobby about what philosophy is. And sometimes the word philosophy is thrown around. It's not really philosophy. You know, it's just political science or something like that. And um, I was accepted as a member of the philosophy department. So I was on the supposedly on the inside of this little inside thing. And so I was talking to Charles Young uh, as a philosopher, and he he's he told he he kind of confided in me. He said, "Well, I have grave concerns about the politics department there at Claremont." And I said, "Well, what are your grave concerns? Tell me." And he said, "Well, they're Straussian." <laughs> and I remember it was the first time I'd ever heard that term. I had no idea what it meant. I it it was not on my radar when I applied to Claremont, it wasn't like, Oh, they're Straussian. That's why I want to go there. I didn't even know what he was talking about. So I said, well, what does that mean? And <laughs> the, the reason I, I, I'm, I don't mean this to be gossipy in any way. I, I apologize if it comes off that way. I don't mean that because I have the highest regard for Charles Young and I had learned so much Aristotle from him. It's just a wonderful teacher, a generous man, but on this particular thing in his, in his office up there in the, in the, the house there off campus, he pulled up a new Republic article. I mean, first of all, he looked startled when I asked what a Straussian was <laughs> and it's like, he wasn't ready for the, that question. Like, and I, it was a genuine question. What is a Straussian? And he, and his answer was, well, uh, he fumbled around and then he said, it, it, they, they read texts really carefully and, and really they pay close attention to texts. And, and I, and I was thinking to myself, <laughs> what's wrong with, that? and <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I just had, you know, like an entire semester with you on one book of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. I mean, aren't we doing the same thing? I mean, and um, I took book five with him on justice. Oh, um, well, I don't think he could answer his own question. And so he pulled up this new Republic article. I don't remember. I probably have it in my email somewhere. I think he emailed it to me or he printed out. And the article itself wasn't really that helpful in telling me what Straussianism was either. And I, I just left that meeting thinking, 
I know that I'm supposed to not like Straussianism as a social rule somehow, but I don't know what it is. And I certainly don't know what it is that's problematic or a big issue. So anyway, it just kind of was one of those experiences in academic life that uh, it's you, you think of academics as people that have it all together. Well, you maybe don't, but but I, I you know, a lot of people do. They, they think they have this naive view of, of college as you're just going to be enlightened. It's going to be one long train of enlightenment because you're around all these smart people. They're just people. And um, so that's my little story about Strauss. Yeah. No, I mean, Joffa's attitude, and this is sort of my attitude too, and a lot of Claremont people, is the modern university is in a way uh, anti-enlightenment in the sense mm -hmm. that it, it removes wisdom. <laughs> it makes us dumber. It makes, right, you know, liberal education, the, the Latin root for liberal in the old classical sense comes from liber, which means book. And the idea, the classical idea, was to be a, that to be a free man meant to be an educated man. And the purpose of the universities originally was to make free men, to make men capable of self-government. And the universities have totally abandoned this, just like as we were saying a moment ago, Strauss's contempt for the political scientists who had nothing to say in the face of tremendous tyranny. They were, they were helpless and useless. And the universities are now, in a way, not only unhelpful, but harmful to the cultivation of citizenship and the virtues necessary for self-government. And certainly they're unhelpful to the cultivation of the mind in a sense of liberating yourself from dogmas and doctrines and learning to think by yourself. Uh, they are seminaries of intolerance, mm -hmm. to use Joffa's favorite, favorite phrases that he gets from Strauss. Um, and so <laughs> there's very little enlightenment, alas, going on in the universities these days. Yeah. Um. So Strauss trains Jaffa, right? And Jaffa takes, um, gosh, I don't know how many courses from Strauss. How many courses would you say? He hit seventeen altogether. Seventeen. Wow. Dang. Well, he he followed him to Chicago for a little while while he was doing some research on his first Lincoln book, and then sat in. So courses that he took for his own degree, and then sat in on a bunch more later on. So he started at New School, which is in New York City. Right, right. Manhattan. He got his PhD, yes, in Lower Manhattan. His Joffa's dad owned a nightclub, uh, <laughs> Lower Manhattan. Yeah, he had an interesting life. He did, um, yeah. Yeah, and then so, and Joffa, sorry, Strauss was there, among many other Jewish refugees from Europe, by the way. The New School in the 30s and 40s was an amazing place. It was full of some of the brightest people in the world who had fled Europe uh, because, of, because of Hitler. And... Um, uh, Jaffa meets Strauss there and is transfixed by this uh, amazing personality. I mean, Strauss was a little, not very imposing man, but uh, an intellectual giant. And Jaffa Apparently. becomes one of his first PhD students uh, uh, and then turns his attention. There's a wonderful little story. I don't know if you have two minutes about how Jaffa became interested in America. Please. So we have all the time in the world. Okay. So, uh, Jaffa was known as, as an Aristotle scholar, and you mentioned the Nicomachean ethics. And by the way, Jaffa, you know, he sort of absorbed the Nicomachean ethics into his bones. It was one of uh, <laughs> the courses he taught all the time, and many, many people who went through, and Jaffa had a very long career, and, and taught the Nicomachean ethics many times, 
And an awful lot of people who graduated from Claremont McKenna say it was the best course they ever had at CMC, wow. Job Physical and Ethics. Uh, he, sometimes he'd get cut up on the first line. You know, the first line is every art and every inquiry, every habit and every practice seems to aim at some good. It's a very famous line. Mm-hmm. Jaffa would spend weeks on that because it's so packed with wisdom. Wow. Anyway, uh, but Jaffa also studied Plato, of course, and he took a course from Strauss. I forget what year this was, maybe 1944, 1945 on Plato's Republic, the very famous book about Plato's Republic. And, and, and famous part of that book is Socrates is arguing with a sophist, a rhetorician, a teacher of rhetoric, who says there's no such thing as natural justice. Justice just means whatever who's in, whatever is in power, right? That's sort of the modern left-wing view, right? Sure. Justice is just an artifact, uh, an imposition. It's a, it's a question of power. And Socrates says, yeah. no, no, there are things that are right and wrong by nature. And this is the famous debate. So Jaffa absorbs this and finds it very interesting. And a year or so later, he's browsing through a used bookstore in Lower Manhattan. And in those days, mm-hmm. you know, bookstores were everywhere. It was wonderful. And comes across a copy of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And he's reading it. And he's amazed. Because here are these two guys in 1858, running for the Senate in Illinois in 1858, arguing about slavery and the justice of slavery, right? Is slavery unjust by nature? Or is it just a matter of whatever the majority wants? And Jaffa says, this is the argument between Socrates and Thrasymachus. And everything that Strauss had taught him about the permanent questions, right? That these questions of right and wrong, of of truth, of justice are enduring questions. That came home to him when he saw the exact same arguments that Socrates had with Thrasymachus in this 1858 Senate debate. And that began a lifelong fascination with Lincoln for him. And he wrote two monumental books on Lincoln. 50 years apart. <laughs> yeah, that's a great story. I love this. I love that. I'd never get sick of hearing that story. I've heard it a few times now, I think. And uh, it's in your book, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, so sure. That must be. Okay. So that's probably the first time I heard it. Um, I think I watched a YouTube video and you said it in that one. That's a great story. I think part of the detail of that story was that he couldn't afford the book. <laughs> right. And so he he went to the bookstore. He kept reading it (laughs) for free. He went back four or five times reading it. And then he finally scrounged up the few dollars uh, that it cost him and and bought it. But he stood in the aisle hours reading it before he saved up the money. Yeah. That says a lot right there about who he was. Yes. Uh, So for those who maybe are not brushed up on the Republic, Plato's Republic, Thrasymachus is the guy who says to Socrates, Socrates is obviously the character that uh, Plato uses. Uh, Plato is not himself a character in the, in the, at least not by name. Right. Um, But uh, Thrasymachus is the guy that says that justice is the interest of the stronger or something like that. Is that right? Right. Right. We're reducing it to a power issue. Right. Exactly. Exactly. This is famous. uh, The term in philosophy is conventionalism. Right. So Mm -hmm. you can have justice by nature. That is, it's grounded in objective reality that man doesn't control or it's merely conventionalism. Right. So your convention is to have slavery and my convention is to not. Your convention is to eat human flesh as cannibals and our convention is not. Right. And then so Thrasymachus is the representation of conventionalism. but the, the interest of the stronger is interesting, especially in the context of Lincoln and America, yes. and also in ancient Athens, because the stronger doesn't necessarily mean 
the biggest guy, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever, you know. It doesn't have to be just one guy. No, because in a democracy, the stronger is the majority. And the majority can also be unjust. And so the whole idea of majority tyranny, of the unjust rule of of a majority unrestrained uh, by law or justice, that's the big issue in the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1850, right? Because Stephen Douglas, Lincoln's opponent, and the two, you know, in 1858, they were running for Senate in Illinois, and then they both ran for president two years later in 1860, and it's the same issue. And Stephen Douglas made Thrasymachus's argument that if the majority wants slavery, they should have it. And Lincoln said, well, you know, <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way, because if two people want to enslave a third person, that doesn't make it right. Wow. Yeah. So now going back a little bit, Leo Strauss, he had a doctorate, I think, in philosophy from a German university. I want to say Freiburg or something like that. that Freiburg Freiburg University. Correct. Freiburg. Okay. I never know how to say it. Um, And was his PhD in philosophy? Yes, I think. I, my recollection is that he wrote his dissertation on Ernst Cassirer, um, but but um, Strauss had studied. You know that was a very an amazing intellectual time in Germany in, mm. in the twenties and thirties. I forget what year Strauss got his degree. He was born in eighteen ninety nine, so some would have been in the nineteen twenties sometime. But he studied with Husserl, uh, very famous, wow. Husserl, and also took some lectures from Martin Heidegger, who was enormously influential. And uh, Strauss came much later to emphatically reject Heidegger's teaching, um, but but took some courses from him, some lectures from him, which he found remarkable and amazing. And Heidegger himself took classical philosophy very seriously. So, and, you know, Strauss studied, you know, Germany in the 1920s was probably one of the intellectual peaks of the whole world. I mean, to be a philosophy student in Germany in the 1920s, was to have received an education like you know nothing else in the history of the world really wow uh, and and by the way it shows you that intellectual life and, and intellectual refinement right uh, uh, it, it, uh, has its limitations because Strauss like yes. that Weimar Germany in the 1930s was the most refined country in the world and helpless in the face of Hitler right amazing it was that it, that itself is a deep teaching right there right yeah so, it shows you the, the value and also the limitations of purely intellectual study. Now, Jaffa was Jewish. Is this correct? Ethnically? They were both Jewish. They were both Jewish. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. um, Jaffa was not, uh, he was conscientious of his Jewish heritage. Uh, he was not, I would say he was not terribly orthodox in his practice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ethnically though. Uh, so he would have identified with, you know, in some personal way with the Holocaust, what was happening over there. Yeah. Sure. Sure. You know, having fled from it and having had members of his family who died in the concentration camp, Strauss obviously was much more personally affected by it. Jaffa Jaffa had a pretty nice childhood. Uh, You know, his dad was a successful businessman and he was born in, so he could relate to it, but it didn't affect him in the personal way that Strauss was affected by it. Um, So, now, now Jaffa, he gets his degree. Is it in philosophy or is it in some kind of social science or political science? Political. So Strauss always called himself a political scientist, sometimes a social scientist, but he always taught in the political science program. And almost all Straussians teach in political science programs 
not in philosophy programs. And why, why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, because so Strauss always there's a big dis- de- debate now within among Straussians okay. um, about the relationship between political and philosophy and how to understand that. But Strauss always emphasized the importance of politics uh, and and uh, why philosophy, properly speaking, uh, always has to be understood, at least from his perspective, as political philosophy. You mm-hmm. begin with the popular opinions of the political opinions and you ascend from there to the truth. And, and Socrates, uh, according to Strauss, was the first political philosopher. That is, he turned away from the direct study of nature to the study of opinions about justice and the noble and the good and so forth. And so, so for Strauss, it's always, you know, almost all Straussians are political scientists for that reason. Gotcha. Okay. And political science has, it's an odd field or a discipline. Um, I think it's a little odd uh, because there's so much, well, at least in some departments, there's so much room for what would just be called philosophy, right? I mean, it's at Claremont, for example, you could take courses on, I took a course on philosophy of history right, with Charles Kessler. Um, and that was a close reading among other things of, of Hegel. Right. That was most, that was the backbone of the course right. was reading Hegel's philosophy of history and a few other things and thinking through what it was saying. Uh, but we were doing that in the political science department. <laughs> right. By the way, I took that same course from Charles Kessler probably 20 or so years before you did. <laughs> Is that right? Okay. Charles was one of my professors too. Right. Wow. right. And you can do even more. I mean, you know, I took a course when I was there uh, from Jim Nichols on Rousseau's Emile, you know, mm. not a very political book. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of ways to look at this. I mean, the whole idea of political science, again, going back to what we were saying earlier, Strauss did not think politics should be treated like a science. And he certainly right. was not very interested in the whole quantitative aspect, which yeah. political science emphasizes today. Yeah, I think that's maybe why it's such a weird thing is that it there's uh, it, it, it sometimes it feels like it's got an identity crisis and it it's not sure if it's a social science or is it philosophy or I guess we'll just be both. Uh, sometimes that's how it feels. With when I was studying philosophy, I, I studied it in the analytic tradition, which is Anglo-American, yeah, analytic, and one of the major concerns right away when I was taking metaphysics, like we were reading Thomas Nagel's The Last Word. Right. And and so that was kind of um well he he's an atheist. He's a uh but he's a weird kind of atheist where he he believes that um there is such a thing as real real right and wrong. You can't make it just relative. So he's right. arguing against relativism. Right. And um so when I hear you talk about uh, Leo Strauss, basically arguing against relativism and just all he's doing is all Jaffa's doing is saying, see, here, here, here's a major issue in American politics, slavery. Hello. It's kind of a big right. deal. <laughs> um, right. it, it, it's, it's like an embodiment of the relativist on justice or the 
Well, when you say justice is just the interest of the stronger, you're really just relativizing it to historical circumstance of right. some kind. Right. White white people are more powerful right now. Um, right. And by the way, could I just jump majority. in a little bit? Sure. Um, what Jaffa always pointed out is that the left, I mean, and this is even more true now in the last few years since Jaffa died, but but the, what he taught about this is so relevant. The left now feels very strongly about slavery, right? It feels very strongly about systemic racism and all this. But if you ask them to explain in a rational way what makes slavery wrong, right? Yep. On what basis, other than your personal opinion, right? they don't know what to say, right? And so Jaffa said, to some degree, some conservatives, to the, to the degree that they're just like mindless traditionalists, but especially the left, there's the strength of their opinion has no correspondence to their ability to make a rational argument. <laughs> That's and right. So thought both left and right have to get back to the natural rights understanding uh, of, of justice that the founders had, even to condemn slavery if it's more than just your opinion. That's true. I, I can confirm that. I, I mean, to give you a few anecdotes, teaching in what I call Lost Angeles <laughs> for many years. Um, I, I remember I actually felt traumatized by this. Um, it was in 2015. I asked, I don't know what led to this, but I just asked, is it true that rape is wrong? to a class in Los Angeles. And to my surprise, and I happen to know that the class was basically all Democrats, like the young, younger version of that, if they had any political leanings at all, if they were self-conscious at all, they probably would have said that. I mean, they would have said that's where they are. And not a single person said it was true that rape was wrong in Los Angeles in a progressive area, an area that went for Hillary uh, a year later by probably three to one margins. And I, I, I was having trouble articulating this, the, the, the shock. I mean, and it, it is so odd. Like when people would say something is racist, I would say, what? Well, first of all, you have to define racism, but once you do define it, um, what is it about racism that makes it really wrong? Like, in other words, a cruder way of saying it would be, why is racism wrong? I hesitate to ask it that way because sometimes people misinterpret it as a rhetorical question, meaning I'm not really asking a question. I'm stating that they, they would misinterpret it as me stating uh, something I don't believe, which is the proposition that racism is not wrong. But I was really asking a question like, what, why is racism wrong? And I've never had a student try to answer the question in any robust way meaning and that that's that's deeply troubling to me that's deeply concerning because i can easily answer the question <laughs> easily i mean that would be one of my first things i took it as my project to do was to answer that question i'm not talking about philosophy majors i'm talking about just general students that are not philosophy majors philosophy majors would take the class or the the issue more seriously i think but um it's a, it's disturbing what you're talking about 
Yeah, and and uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to turn off my phone. No problem. Uh, it's especially problematic uh, in in the United States because the whole principle of self-government depends on having some understanding of where our rights come from, what the basis of constitutionalism is, what the basis of equality is, uh, of having certain virtues and habits that make self-government possible. Uh, and when you lose that, then the, the American experiment in liberty becomes very problematic. And we've we lost that certainly on the left, but even on the right, you know, there's, there's tremendous numbers of people on the right who have very good opinions. They're traditionalists, they're patriots, but they right. also don't have a very good intellectual understanding of where their rights come from. Why does government have to be limited? What does it mean to say we're all uh, equal by nature in our rights? Um, and so on both sides now, we're, we seem to be getting closer and closer to uh, uh, some kind of conflict. Uh, but but neither side uh, has any real rational explanation of, of what their position is other than <laughs> we dislike each other. Uh, and so, again, I mean, I think uh, what I tried to do in the book is, is show the ground in which you can make these arguments and explain, OK, this is where our rights come from. This is why slavery is wrong. Um, there are arguments and they're not that hard to understand, but it does take a little bit of work. Let's give a, a little bit of a, well, I think, what do you think the Jaffa is most famous for uh, publicly? Like that would be known. Maybe. So you maybe, just, yeah. Um, you just had, uh, who did you have on the other day when the Goldwater 1964 speech came up in the discussion? Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, right. A lot of people uh, know about Goldwater's 1964 speech at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Extremism and defense of liberty is, is uh, no vice. Uh, uh, yes. Moderation in the pursuit of, of uh, justice. What a great no quote. Virtue. What a great right, quote. Right, right. And even to this day, a lot of people don't like it. Uh, they think it's wrong to defend extremism. But uh, as Jaffa pointed out, this comes right out of Aristotle. And his teacher, Leo Strauss, by the way, confirmed that. There's a transcript of one of Strauss's courses where he actually mentions that he knew that his student Jaffa had written the speech. He didn't tell his class that because I guess he thought it's not something he should have revealed. But there are letters between Strauss and Jaffa that I've seen. Uh, and Strauss knew that Jaffa had written the speech. And both Jaffa and, and Strauss defend this on the basis of Aristotle, uh, because all the virtues are, in a way, in extreme in the sense that that to be virtuous is to be excellent. It's to be superlative. It's not the, the, the Aristotelian mean doesn't mean to be wishy-washy and mushy and just middling. It means to be excellent, right? And so every virtue in a way is an extreme in the sense that it's above and superior to the deficiencies. The deficiencies are on either side, right? So courage is an extreme, whereas the deficiency of courage, which is cowardice, uh, is something low and middling. And also the extreme on the other end, which is recklessness, uh, is also a deficiency. Um, and in politics, too, has to always be conscientious of the need for extremes. Right? What's the most extreme possible thing in politics? War. Well, sometimes war is necessary. And statesmanship, which is the excellence in the pursuit of politics, has to be prepared for yeah. uh, war sometimes. And so Absolutely. you can't get away from extremism. It's such a basic point. I don't know why people have such a hard time with it. It, 
Right. I think it's just a mindless uh, repeating of the, well, maybe it's just the assumption that extremism is bad um, right. because people in the media maybe are labeled a, a, an extremist or in like political speeches or something like that extremism. Right. Um, but I, you know, in my classes, I always point out that mother Teresa was pretty extreme. Um, <laughs> sure. Jesus, Jesus was extreme. <laughs> I mean, that's why we know about them is because they were extreme. If they were just normal people, I don't think that you would care. Any moral hero is extreme people. Yeah, and you know who made that extreme, that exact point was Martin Luther King a year before in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He said, St. Paul was an extremist. Jesus was an extremist. Lincoln was an extremist. Yeah. And Jaffa in a way he reveals this later on was playing off that. Because uh, yeah. oh, okay. everyone had read the, the the MLK speech, and so Jaffa was was keying off that in a way, saying, "Look, you know, you guys have already made this point on the left." <laughs> it's interesting um, that Jaffa would be so academic and then be noted for writing the speech for Goldwater, the presidential candidate. I think that was the GOP convention at the Cow Palace. Is that right? Yep, in, in San Francisco. Yep, exactly. 1964. So a uh, major candidate, major party, the Republican Party. Um, he didn't win that, that no. year. He got killed, uh, basically not killed literally, but or physically, but he uh, he lost really badly to Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, right. But do you but think you that it say, was it wasn't because of that speech, though, right? Well, you know, you it think didn't it help. And so a couple of things. Jaffa was Jaffa wrote those lines in an internal memo because Goldwater was getting beaten up terribly by the Eastern establishment, the moderate wing of the Republican Party, Governor Scrant from Pennsylvania, Governor Rockefeller from New York. And they were just beating up Goldwater for being an extremist. Right. That was the line even you being used by yeah. moderate Republicans. then, And. And, probably and didn't help Goldwater, that he was against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Right. I mean, right, they used right. that against him, even though they his, used, there's reasons for being against that were oh, yeah, purely yeah. philosophical. The way, they weren't. The way that's played out has vindicated all those criticisms, I think. Now we I can think see so 50 years yeah. later that the, that the critics were right about the way the law would be misinterpreted and misused and, and what its logical outcome would be. But anyway, yeah. so, so Goldwater was upset by these constant charges of extremism. And, and so Jaffa wrote a little internal memo drawing on, you know, these various uh, things and, and, and wrote that line. And Goldwater loved it so much, he insisted that it be put in the speech. And so Jaffa uh, worked on the speech with another speechwriter named Carl Hess and put that in, and then some people didn't like it. And Goldwater underlined it twice on his draft and said, it's in final end of story. And when he read those lines, the entire audience yeah. cheered. There was a standing ovation that lasted something like 27 seconds or something. <laughs> they could hear the cheering out on the street. So it went yeah. over. It didn't go over as well with the rest of the country, but the delegates there loved it because they were annoyed by these constant attacks. The other thing about, about the failure is, it did uh, really set up the Republican Party for Reagan in 1980 because it established the legitimacy and the authority and the influence of the conservative wing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Goldwater, uh, the way he, he basically put the Scrantons and the Rockefellers and the Eastern establishment in their place paved the way for Reagan in 1980. Wow. 
there's so much there. Um, do you think that you mentioned that Jaffa was a prolific letter writer? Oh yeah. Do you think that his letter writing was just a kind of a, a per- preference for a medium or do you think he had could be and and or do you think that he had a conscious a conscientiousness about the record he was leaving to the rest of us later um all of the above so okay. one thing is just generational like he was born in 1918 right all you did was write letters i mean even the phone was not really a thing until until later <laughs> he was an english Although major. i've heard about his phone calls <laughs> he yes he also looked so so i joke i don't remember if i mentioned this in the book but sometimes he'd read you one of his letters and then he'd call you on the phone later just to make sure you heard. And this happened to me personally. I would get oh, a performance funny. at the Claremont Institute. And then I'd go home that night and he would call me. He was sort of fond of me as one of his grad students. And he'd say, Glenn, did I read you my latest letter? And I'd say, yes. So, well, let me tell you again. And he'd read it to me again over the phone. <laughs> but but so so partly it's generational, right? I mean, everyone just wrote letters. And and he loved the English language. He was an English major at Yale mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, was a right. That where's where he he developed his love for Shakespeare and he maintained yes. a lifelong love for Shakespeare and saw Shakespeare by the way as a political a very profound political yes. and philosophical thinker, but it's also partly what you say um, he wanted to get things on the record. Some, sometimes he wrote very long, very interesting letters that were like a tutorial. There's a letter he wrote that's I don't know ten or twelve pages and about the connection between. Uh, in the beginning, in the beginning, okay. and then typed, and then typed. He didn't have great handwriting, so I'm sort of glad. <laughs> okay. uh, not as bad as Leo Strauss, whose handwriting is totally indecipherable. But oh, wow. but Jaffa, by the way, always wanted to keep up with technology, and so he adopted computers. And then every time there was a next generation of computers, he 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 was on board with that. So most of them are are, are typed or or on the computer. But he also wanted to teach something and leave and and leave a legacy behind. And so he preserved all of his letters. Do you think that was just a, a personality thing, his compulsiveness in teaching? Do you think that he's just a born teacher or did that come from his parents? How did he, how did he become that way? Well, just um, a curious person. He was a very curious person. He knew very early on that he wanted to be an academic. He wasn't sure if he wanted to get a PhD in English or in political science. The, politi- the English department at Yale was great. The political science department was very disappointing. He really didn't switch until he went to graduate school. And, and by the way, even in those days, it wasn't clear that he could go into either field. Uh, uh, you have to remember, you know, uh, that was still at the time when Jews uh, couldn't get into some fields. And both his dad, who was a very sensible businessman, and his academic advisor advised him not to try to go for an academic career in those fields. Uh, being Jewish, but he ignored that and he succeeded anyway. But he was intellectually curious. He was combative. He he loved to write. He, he was a, he was a very good and, and beautiful writer. Um, so in a way, it, all science pointed to him being a teacher and, and, a, and a very good one. Do you have any letters that he wrote you that you keep for in your personal collection? So there is one letter by me in the archives at Hillsdale. Uh, which I'm sort of gratified by. And it's cool. so in those days, I was a very heavy smoker and Jaffa was a health nut and would always beat me up when he saw me with a cigarette in my mouth. He, he had, was a long, he had been a boxer at Yale, 
by the way, Gerald Ford was his boxing coach for a year at Yale. Um, and then he switched to long distance cycling and was always a health fanatic. He didn't drink. He hated smoking. And he always beat me up about it. One time I wrote him a long letter basically saying, you know, leave me alone. And <laughs> why are you so? And then so he wrote me back, you know, chastising me. And those those letters got preserved in the archive. So I'm, I find oh, that sort awesome. of amusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you, don't have any, you don't have any letters yourself of him? Uh, from from him? him, just that just that one that okay. he wrote back. I wish I had written him some brilliant analysis of, uh, you know, Plato's Pythagoras or something, but um, unfortunately, no. <laughs> when you th when you remember him and recall him, how many classes did you take from him? So again, he had retired okay. uh, from. A, so I never had a registered class, but gotcha. I was, you know, along with the other grad students, I was down in his basement, his office in the basement <laughs> of the library all the time. I wish I could have seen and, that. Oh, it was it was a sight to behold. He basically just absorbed the whole space. And I mean, I probably spent as much time listening to him lecture, whether he had retired or not, because, you know, many, many hours uh, of impromptu seminars and discussions. So I, I still feel like he was my teacher. Did you ever see him interact with Harry Newman? Yes, many times. I, I, I got tell, to tell know us about those debates. Right. So Harry Newman, another uh, uh, was was a colleague of his, taught at one of the other Claremont colleges, and the two of them co-taught. They were friends, co-taught a course for many many years, informally called the Harry and Harry Show, but formally called Socrates or Nihilism. And Newman was another student of Strauss and a very eminent, not as not very well known today, but a very eminent Nietzsche scholar and scholar of German especially German nihilism. Newman had and, studied with Strauss in person? Yes, Newman had also studied with Strauss. Wow. Um, and uh, was also uh, like Strauss, but unlike Jaffa, was born in Germany and had come to the United States and had studied with Strauss. And um, because he was a native speaker of German, uh, became a very excellent scholar of German philosophers, especially Nietzsche. And Newman called himself a nihilist. And nihilism is basically a more extreme version of relativism. It's the idea that the universe is just matter in motion. It's completely indifferent to human life. Humans are just blobs with consciousness, but the idea that there's any kind of natural justice, the idea that there's any meaning in the universe is just a fantasy, a delusion. Uh, you know, the only, the only meaning that exists in, in the world is what we invent in our own minds. And so that's nihilism. And Jaffa, I'm sorry, Newman called himself a nihilist, but partly I think this was just for the sake of showing people what it really meant. And so they co-taught this famous seminar, which was basically the great philosophical debate. Is there right. such a thing as natural justice or not? And they took the two sides of this and, and it, was, it was wonderful. And many people took this famous course and found it immensely illuminating. And uh, Newman was around and I got to know him a little bit too, but I, I never actually registered for that famous Socrates or nihilism class, unfortunately. But Newman plays a part in my book because he brings out yeah. what you might call, you might call them Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? right. Uh, the dark side and the bright side of political philosophy. And it was a very fruitful uh, partnership they had. I never saw them interact in person, but I have met Newman. I met him. Oh, I think I even went over his house because I have a memory. It has to be a real memory. 
that they were they served me cookies or something like that and his wife and i think they had a dog or something yeah anyway, well they they lived within a few blocks of each other yes uh, just in you know claremont. less than a mile yeah in claremont yeah, less than yeah. a mile from the colleges they they all lived in the well i had a there. colleague at loyola marymount rob allison who would go in dialogue with Yul, uh, newman all the time and um told me you got to meet this guy you got to meet this guy and i i always wondered i couldn't tell is 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 he really a nihilist do you think he was <laughs> i, I, I don't tell. think yeah. i don't think he was at the end of the day okay. um he certainly didn't live like i would think a nihilist would it seemed like he was very thoughtful and personable about but maybe yeah, he, maybe, his maybe answer, that's his view is that he needs friends because that's all you right. have and so i think right. that's the the, the the feeling I got was maybe he, he's so friendly because he knows that that's all you really have. And that's real because it's useful for you when you're alive. I don't know. But what, yeah, what was your sense? When, yeah. Well, when people would ask him, you know, uh, Professor Newman, you claim to be a nihilist and there's no such thing as morality and all of life is meaningless, yet you live like a nice, good suburban bourgeois Jew. He was also Jewish, by the way. And his answer to that was, well, that's my choice. And under nihilism, you can choose anything you want. And you can choose to be a cannibal or a murderer, or you can choose to choose to be a nice suburban bourgeois Jew. And that's what I choose. <laughs> but it's just arbitrary. But, but just one real quick thing. What was yeah, yeah. so great about Newman and why he complimented Jaffa so well is there's an awful lot of people in the world, especially on the left, especially in the academy, who are what you might call fake nihilists or cowardly nihilists, right? They want to deny that the idea, they want to deny the idea of objective morality. They want to deny Socrates. They want to deny natural right, but they don't embrace the full consequences of that, right? They stop short. Newman showed, if you want to believe this, here's what it means. And he showed you the dark side of it, the horror of it. And he was very good in bringing out in explaining nihilist literature. You know, he taught, for instance, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which shows you that if you give up morality, it has very ugly, frightening consequences. And Newman like forced the students to see this, to show them what, and so he had no patience for cowardly nihilists. And that was a very useful compliment to Jaffa. Hmm. Yeah, so there's no, there's no record between them, like letters back and forth or diary entries of, okay, but they didn't like say, okay, and when we're, they weren't planning this out like for just pedagogical effect? Um, no, I mean, uh, again, it's just a suspicion that, that, that Newman was not, uh, you know, in his That's heart right. of hearts, I don't think he really was. I mean, this was what Newman said and what he taught. Um, and, and there was no subterfuge or anything. Um, right. But just, you know, the way, I mean, everything Newman's career pointed to, all of his concerns and his friendship with Jaffa, I think indicate that he was at the end of the day, an ally of Socrates and natural right, but saw the utility of showing the alternative in a stark way. You have uh, a chapter on philosopher and poet, Aristotle and Shakespeare, which is fascinating. I do not know Shakespeare as well as I would like to. And I wonder, did you have to learn Shakespeare well to really get into this? So I had, 
partly because um, Jaffa encouraged it. I had read some Shakespeare a little bit um, over the years, but preparing for this book, I then reread, especially some of the plays that Jaffa was especially interested in um, and studied those closely. I'd become a kind of an amateur student of, of King Lear, which I think is one of uh, Shakespeare. And I actually wanted to write something on King Lear because Jaffa wrote a very, very influential essay on King Lear very early on in the 1950s. Um, and that essay I think has never been adequately understood even by many Straussian Shakespeare scholars. And so I wanna write something like that. But so I, I reread um, some of the plays that Jaffa wrote about uh, Measure for Measure and The Tempest and the English history plays, uh, which um, Jaffa finds very interesting for the way they point to the political problem in the Middle Ages and especially in, in England the constant civil wars, the problem of religious liberty, and how that points to the solution that Jefferson and the founders implemented with religious liberty. And so he draws out all of these political and philosophical lessons, both in the comedies and the tragedies and in the history plays, uh, which are very illuminating, I think. Shakespeare is a delight to read. If you, I mean, he's such a wonderful writer. I mean, every, it seems like every, phrase i'm like how did he do that and it, it takes me a while to get through it i wish i could read it faster but if you were to recommend something to get people started if they wanted to chase down something that jaffa said or to get a handle on this political significance of shakespeare what would you say that they should focus on so um not that it's the easiest i mean some of the comedies are um are more fun, but I, so let me mention three and then just say real quick. Sure. Right? So sort of depending on what your interest. So okay. there's the there's the two Venetian plays, Othello and Merchant of Venice. And by the way, you know I, I'm not an opponent, and Jaffa was not an opponent of performances. I mean, performances can really help you. The, the plays were written to be performed. That's true. And some some people find it difficult to go through it and reading it. But if you want, and there YouTube. are some very, <laughs> yeah, there are some very, and you know, you can get streaming services and others. There are some very good film adaptations. Uh, and, and Jaffa was not so much of a purist that he would have looked down his nose at that. So for instance, you know, you wouldn't think so, but Dustin Hoffman has a portrayal of Shylock in a production of The Merchant of Venice, which is very good, I think, and brings up. And so if you want to approach Shakespeare by watching it, there, you know, Kenneth Branagh did a lot of the history plays. Uh, there's one with uh, Lawrence Fishburne as Othello, which I think is pretty good. So I would mention Othello and Merchant of Venice because Jaffa points out how those plays in a way show the emergence of the modern world, the commercial Republic. And they show the tension between Christianity and Judaism, the old world and the new, uh, the medieval world transforming to the world of commercial Republicanism. So those are very interesting. Measure for Measure, though, is one of my favorite. It's one Jaffa wrote about, which is very interesting. And it's, and it's about sex and the problems of sex and, and, and why marriage is, a, is in a way a political institution. And it's a, wonderful, it's a funny play. It's kind of a weird play. It's a dark comedy, uh, but it's full of all sorts of interesting insights. It shows you uh, Shakespeare's Machiavellian side. Um, so um, there's no standout a uh, film adaptation of that that I would recommend. Um, but um, philosophically, it's one of the most interesting of Shakespeare's plays. When you say it shows uh, Shakespeare's Machiavellian side, what, what do you mean by that? Right. So th th this might just take 
more than 10 seconds, but sure. in, the, in the middle ages, um, Christianity, I'm not critiquing Christianity per se, but Christianity had, had the emergence of Christianity as the, the universal religion of Europe posed a real political problem. Because mm-hmm. unlike the ancient world, the pre-Christian world, um, you now have a potential for conflict between your duty to God and your duty to the government, right? Um, what the priest tells you may not be what, the, what your prince tells you. What the pope says may not be what the king says. And so this creates all sorts of problems, political problems, that did not exist before Christianity became the universal religion of Western civilization. And Jaffa develops this and explains this very well. And so all sorts of, of philosophers through the Middle Ages are trying to figure out how do we deal with this? How do we overcome this problem of um, uh, popes fighting with kings, popes interfering with politics, kings interfering with religion, people being burned, right? Because if you have an official religion, then every heretic becomes an enemy of the state. And so government is persecuting right. for heresy and all sorts of problems. Machiavelli, the great Italian philosopher who becomes a teacher of evil, um, said, okay, the way the solution to this is, is reject Christianity, uh, just have politics uh, focus on what's effective uh, make princes ruthless and just uh, get all discussion of virtue and morality out of politics. And that solution has its own problems. Shakespeare sees the same problem that Machiavelli and other philosophers see of, of this problem of religion and politics and doesn't quite solve it in the way that Machiavelli does, but is looking for um, a humane answer to this problem. In a way, the answer... Jaffa liked to say that Shakespeare points to, without ever quite reaching, the solution that Jefferson and the founders come up with, which is with, which is what is religious liberty. And this is hinted at, again, in the Venetian plays I mentioned, Merchant of, Ele- Merchant of Venice and Othello. And so the, Shakespeare's Machiavellian side is he sees this problem that Christianity poses for politics in the same way that Machiavelli sees it, but he doesn't want to go the Machiavellian route. He doesn't want to say, abandon morality, abandon religion, you know, reject Christianity uh, and just become ruthless. Um, so Shakespeare wants to retain a more humane solution, although he never quite uh, latches onto one that he fully develops. Wow. There's a lot there. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All you, the great writers are, are pretty deep. There's a lot going on there. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I think we should probably spend some time on this. Uh, you call it the theological political problem in your chapter five, reason, revelation, and the theological political problem. It's kind of a mouthful, the theological political problem. Are you, (laughs) you mentioned that Jefferson had an uh, kind of an answer to something that Shakespeare was pointing to with religion. Uh, Is that what you mean? Or do you mean something else? Right. So, even though it's a mouthful, I have to make it even more complicated by saying there's two <laughs> ways. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. There's two ways of understanding the theological political problem. And they're okay. connected. So it just means theological polit- means the relationship between God and politics, right? Or religion and politics. What obligations do we have to God? What obligations do we have to the political community? And so that's the crisis of citizenship that I was talking about a moment ago, where you have yeah. uh, Protestants battling Catholics, you know, burning of heretics, popes and kings constantly battling with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and that finally gets resolved with the principle of religious liberty in America. 
there's an earlier version of this, which, which actually comes up before Christianity. And this is the version of the theological political problem that Joffrey's teacher, Leo Strauss, was interested in. And this goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And that is the idea that there are two peaks of the soul. So it's, it's connected with this. The one peak of the soul is contemplation of the eternal, right? Uh, pure, uh, pure philosophy, the pure life of the mind, uh, the life of contemplation. So, you know, God, even though the Greeks didn't have the same notion of God, you might say, you know, the eternal. And the other is the life of action, the life of statesmanship, the life of the political man. Um, and so, uh, and these are always intention, right? The life of contemplation doesn't ever refute the life of, of action. They each have their own spheres. They each have their own dignity. Um, and uh, the tension between them, the interplay between them is one of the great uh, sources of, of Western civilization. The, the famous phrase for this is Athens and Jerusalem, right? Yeah. Athens represents the life of philosophy, of rational inquiry, and Jerusalem represents the life of pious obedience to God. And both of these are wellsprings of Western civilization. So you have contemplation and action. How does that map onto Athens and Jerusalem again? So, um, uh, so <laughs> yeah, so, so. Um, Would Jerusalem uh, be action or? Right. So, so yeah. So the, 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 the elder, the other element of this is, is um, the philosopher in a, in a way, um, um, escapes the moral considerations. So politics, morality, and piety are in a way all interconnected. Uh, mm -hmm. The political man is always the moral man, right? Because politics has to be concerned with moral conduct. Uh, action, action and morality go together. And so piety, religion, okay. gotcha. morality, and politics are one. And then contemplation in a way, it's not that the philosopher is necessarily a bad person, but he's less concerned with moral conduct and in a way, he also is always skeptical of morality. To be a philosopher at the highest level, and this is why philosophy is always a little dangerous, to be a philosopher at the highest level means to question everything. It even means to question religion. It even means to question morality. And so piety, politics, morality all go together. And philosophy, which questions everything and is therefore always a little dangerous, uh, is in a way the non-political, the non-religious, the non-moral realm. That makes sense. So it's it's a deep, multifaceted problem going <laughs> yeah. all the way back to the ancient world. Sure. It's got some got some elements that we're familiar with. Um, one way of looking at the problem is resolved in America in uh, the correct understanding of religious liberty, which itself seems to be always under some kind of threat uh, still today. Um, Jaffa was quite biblically literate, it seemed like to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, where did he get his biblical literacy? Why was he so literate in the Bible? I, another, another wonderful little anecdote. So um, he had studied Torah, you know, as a young Jew student, um, mm -hmm. went to bar. He used to say that um, uh, he almost had to be beaten into reading the Torah. He was you know, he was not the, the, the best yeshiva student. And so when he was studying for bar mitzvah, he had a friend who, would, who was much better at these sort of things who helped him, you know, crib for his, for, his, for his bar mitzvah. But then it was really at Yale 
where he took informal Bible study classes with a famous Shakespeare professor he had. Um, oh. And it was in these informal Bible classes, which met you know, at this professor's house, that he really uh, developed partly because of the literary aspect of the Bible. Um, and he says that that study of the King James Bible uh, at Yale, outside of the classroom, prepared him for reading Lincoln, because so much of Lincoln, yes. Lincoln's rhetoric makes biblical allusions. And so Jaffa says he would have missed all of these allusions to the Bible and Lincoln if he had not taken these informal Bible study classes. So he said that's some of the best stuff he ever learned at Yale <laughs> outside the classroom. Wow. That's really important. Informal Bible study at Yale. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. He said he couldn't have le- he couldn't have understood Lincoln. Wow. Without that. Well, he w- he would not have adequately understood Lincoln because no, so much so many of these. Yeah, yeah. You know, when Lincoln well, talks about the house divided, that's out of the Bible, right? Absolutely. You know, it's it, that's really great that you said that because my first master's degree was in Bible biblical studies. So I came to this with uh, Hebrew and Greek and, and learning Torah, reading, having to translate, you know, parts of Genesis and Exodus and stuff like that. Well, I was taking a, a course at Claremont in the religion department called religion and politics in America. The, the professor was Richard Bushman of Columbia. He was visiting Columbia University in New York. And um, we got to Lincoln and, and slavery, kind of an important issue, I would think. And it was all religion students. I think there were maybe one or two political people in there. But um, so it was. Um, I, I didn't say much in that. I didn't say much at all in my classes, but I just took notes and listened. And I finally said something because the TA was running it and the professor was just kind of old at that point and just letting the TA do whatever. And the TA, we had a really shallow conversation about the Bible and slavery. And the TA said, okay, so I think we all agree that the Bible is pro-slavery. Okay, let's move on. This is a PhD level course, right? (laughs) In religion and politics in America, Ivy league professor, I'm just like, I had to say something. I was like, okay, <laughs> hold up. Yo, hold up. I couldn't believe PhD religion students. They, they yeah. did not even catch. See, I was raised in church that was King James only. So when I was a really little kid, I had to memorize the King James version of the Bible in terms of like the Psalms in terms of, I just, I had a feel for the language and that's probably the only reason I can even get through parts of Shakespeare as I have that kind of Elizabethan tongue in a way. I, I mean, at least I know it. I know Psalm 23 is, is a perfect example of that. I, that's the, that's an example of that. Um, well, you know, when, when it says I shall not want, you know, I had to figure what that meant as a kid, you know, right. Well, well, we're reading Lincoln and he's quoting the Bible and I can tell he's quoting the Bible. I mean, I didn't know exactly what verse it was, but I was like, Oh, that's obviously King James right there. So I looked it up and it was Matthew 18 and uh, Matthew 18 and the content, you know, when you learn in 
biblical studies is you read the context, read verse before, you read the verse after, you try to get a sense of what it's saying. He's lifting it out of context, but you can tell he's saying it to people that are biblically literate because he's not saying in the second inaugural, for example, oh, look at me, I'm quoting Matthew 18. This is Matthew 18, everyone. Get that in the footnote. He's not saying that. He just says it. And, and you can tell he expects everybody there to know exactly that, oh, yeah, that's a quote from Jesus. Um, and that the context of that was the death penalty for causing little children to stumble mm-hmm. and because of sin. And the sin he was referring to was slavery. Anyway, so I was pointing this out. And the entire class turned. Like it just was like, but what was so disturbing to me was that it it took such a little thing to that it would have been totally lost if if I had <laughs> if I hadn't been forced by my parents and tortured by my parents to read the King James version of the Bible because even me I probably would have been like, oh okay well yeah I guess that's what we're supposed to believe um, but no 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 so that totally makes a lot of sense to me when when you say that the biblical literacy is a subtle thing. Like it, like even the house divided. I mean, that I knew that was, you know, that's the original context of that is in the gospels where Jesus says, uh, someone I think someone accuses him of like Satanism or something, or being his, uh, ability to heal. I can't remember exactly, but it was something, uh, I think it was a miracle and, and, and Jesus says, well, a house divided against itself won't stand. So in other words, this is not evidence that Satan is against himself. That would make no sense. I believe that's right. And Lincoln takes that and it doesn't do exactly the same thing, but the language is there and it would be what people totally understood as, oh yeah, a house divided against itself can't fall I mean, or will fall. Right. So Yeah. So that, that kind of thing is really important. I'm glad you illuminated both of those uh, ways that he was so biblically literate, yeshiva and Yale. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, he got the Shakespeare from uh, Yale. Um, now, when um, can we ask you, uh, how did you get interested in in politics did you were you did you were you raised in a political home or did you come to these interests later in college or how did you get yeah, not not especially my parents were not that my, my parents were sort of uh they voted republican but not especially conservative my dad owned a business um uh but i was always sort of interested in it and then in, mm-hmm. as an undergraduate um so i was in in college in boston in the late 80s and was a cold warrior and, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, all in for, for battling the Soviet Union uh, and actually studied Soviet studies. I was an international relations major and my focus was on studying the Soviet Union. I never learned Russian, but I was very interested in understanding what was going on there. Um, and did then you study at Boston University. Under I did study at Boston. University, yeah, uh, I, I took one course with Angelo and it didn't really make an impression on me. And then I met him many years later. Uh, wow. And then I really got to appreciate his virtues. Oh. Um, 
but but then the Soviet Union came apart in 1989 and 1991, and I thought, well, here I have this degree <laughs> in you know examining a regime that has fallen apart, uh, and so then my my interest turned to political philosophy as something a little bit more enduring uh, and a little less likely to become overtaken by events. Um, I had been working at a, uh, a think tank or a sort of uh, a nonprofit in New York City because I grew up on Long Island which was sort of a, uh, a less, uh, an alternative to Amnesty International, a place called Freedom House. Because the problem with Amnesty International was it was always too soft on the communist regimes, right? It was always sort of coming down hard on any kind of right-wing dictatorship, but often it was, was kind of soft. And Freedom House was an alternative that existed to focus on the human rights violations of the communist world. And I had just wound up there for a variety of reasons as a summer intern in college. And the head of the organization gave me this book called Keeping the Tablets, a collection of conservative writings edited by Buckley and Charles Kessler. And there was, and the guy pointed to this particular essay in there called Equality as a Conservative Principle by Harry Jaffa. And he said, I especially think you should read this. And I thought, equality as a conservative principle? I never heard of any such thing. <laughs> and I read it and I thought, wow, this is good stuff. And I, oh, Harry Jaffa and Charles Kessler there in Claremont. And I decided to go there. And Wow. That's how that happened. <laughs> and did you know that you wanted to get a PhD? Did you want to teach? I was getting more and more interested in political philosophy. I didn't know right away if I wanted an academic career and I ended up not really having an academic. I, I spent a long time in the federal government uh, at the energy department and the nuclear regulatory commission. Um, and now I'm sort of in doing GS, all of this. Going up the GS ranks or? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was in, in the GS scale. I was a political appointee. Um, in the second Bush administration, and then um, uh, and then left a few years ago to do this book, and now I'm I'm not going to go back to the government. I'm just doing this writing and teaching stuff full time. <laughs> wow, that's that's quite a story there. Did you like working for the government? It was uh, informative, I would say. It's <laughs> it's useful for me. So I give a lot of talks now. I was just at a Claremont Institute event. Uh, in Florida, just this past weekend, where they do all these fellowship programs for different different people, teaching them the principles of the founding, which is what Claremont does. And yeah. and once a year, they bring people together for a little follow up, you know, a weekend of, of some panels and discussions and networking. And I gave a little talk on um, how to battle the bureaucracy, assuming we get uh, a statesman into the White House who actually wants to, you know, follow up on draining the swamp. What would that look like? And because one of Joppa's <laughs> students is, is an amazing guy named John Marini, who's focused of all him. of Joppa's teaching about understanding America on understanding the administrative state, the bureaucracy, where does it come from? And, okay. and that has very, very practical applications. And so I combine that oh. with my own 20 years of working in the bureaucracy to give a little talk on, on what it would mean to, to battle the bureaucracy in a future administration. And when you say, did you say the swamp? Do you think that there is a swamp? <laughs> yeah, you can call it the swamp or the blob or the deep state or the administrative state. It's, it's the permanent government, right? It's the people who not only remain from one administration to the other, but more and more are not even answerable to the elected president, right? And this is more of a party uh, for one party than the other because one party 
is pro big government, right? And its mm-hmm. its opinions match the opinions of the bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy is now a faction in and of itself in our politics. But when the other party, the party that's not so in favor of big government comes in, it's not clear that it has any control over the bureaucracy. And right. this is, of course, completely antithetical to the idea of Republican government, constitutional government that the founders created. Yeah. And so but what's harder to figure out is what to do about that. Right? Yes. <laughs> a lot, a lot of people, they, they seems like on, on, um, on the Republican side of things, like at least the ground level, the ground voters get, especially the true believers, I, I think just get disillusioned and, and angry, maybe underneath the anger is a sense of helplessness, sadness, right. yeah. where the perception is that the Republicans are just a bunch of sellouts but I, I have the same, same sense that you have that it's like, well, if you go a little deeper and think about this, what are you supposed to do? What would you do if you were elected? What's your first thing you're going to do to battle the, the so-called deep state or the, the just to drain the swamp? What are you actually going to do? And that's what I ask congressional candidates all the time. I ask them specifically, we just had a congressional candidate on where I've asked, I asked her, but what are you going to do? Like, do you realize how big the government is? It's permanent. You have two years and you have to start raising money right away. And by the way, you're on the West coast and you're flying, you're using, you're losing all that time in an airplane. Uh, Used to be, you'd have to have a mask on, but now you don't have to have that. Thank God. But you you just like, you can, uh, what realistically, are you going to read all that? Are you going to, do you really trust your staff? who have to go up against these permanent people, what right. are you going to do? So what, what can you give us a sense of what, what some hope do you, do you have any hope for us, Glenn? Is there I do you can really do. Okay. Yeah. So um, uh, on the question of hope, because there is an awful lot of cynicism and hopelessness out there. I always remind yeah. people uh, of what Jaffa and Strauss taught, uh, which is uh, because we don't believe in historical determinism. We're not Marxists or Hegelians. Okay. We believe in the realm of human freedom and, and the possibility of moral choice. And, and because there is always moral freedom, there is always human choice, history is never determined, right? One of Jaffa's favorite stories is about Churchill in May of 1940. You know, Nazi victory seemed inevitable, mm. um, but it wasn't inevitable, partly because Churchill refused to accept that it was inevitable, right? So human determination and human choice uh, always uh, leave open the possibility of, of something happening. So yeah, I laid out a lot of steps. Uh, some of them, I don't think I, it would be prudent to discuss in public because they, they would be sure. more effective if we, Makes sense. But, but, but part of it is plan ahead, uh, uh, get your people lined up. And, and the one thing I will share because it's not totally a secret is Republicans uh, forget that the bureaucracy operates outside the constitution. And so it's not enough simply to put the right people in the cabinet, the right assistant secretary, and assume that that's how policy gets changed because the bureaucracy does not operate within the constitution. And so one thing we have to do is focus on all the lower level things where the bureaucracy is powerful, the process areas, the IT areas, the personnel areas, right? We have to focus on getting those things under control, which are not very glamorous and not very sexy, but are absolutely essential to getting this beast under some democratic accountability. And so there's a lot of 
uh, unglamorous things that need to be done. And we need to start preparing way ahead of time to get our people lined up for that. These are unglamorous things that, um, like, can you give an example maybe? Of, yeah, so, so have, IT so systems. Grab onto it. Okay. Yeah, so IT systems, right? So you put your administrator, you, you put your, your assistant secretary for widgets in charge, and you assume that, that we're going to have good widget policy. But the bureaucracy can slow roll anything they don't like. They can hold things up. Uh, they leak, right? So one thing you mm -hmm. need to do is, okay, how do you control leaks? How do you, you prevent people from use? Well, do you have your own people in charge of the IT system? If you don't, forget about it, right? So you have to control the flow of information. You have to control who has passwords. Uh, for instance, in the intelligence community, just to take an example, I'm not taking a position on him one way or the other right now, but Trump was constantly undermined by people who had security clearances, who, who had, should never have had security clearances. You mentioned Angela Cotavilla. He was always getting exasperated because Trump wouldn't pull this. And by the way, the president has absolute authority to do this. He doesn't have to ask anyone. Pull the security clearances of all these people who should not have them and are using them to undermine your, your administration. There's no reason in the world the president has to put up with people having clearances who are leaking information, who are abusing that privilege, who are undermining the president's agenda. So, so Republicans have to do a much better job of thinking aggressively, of thinking outside the box, of being proactive, of getting control of clearances and IT systems and the personnel offices and the rulemaking branch and all of these things that we don't think about, but the left thinks about all the time. Yes. Why do you think that our side doesn't think about that like the left does? Is it just that they're obsessed with power? And so they yeah. think it, they stay up late at night thinking about the intricacies of how to gain more power and how to keep that's it. A, that's a huge, that's a huge part of it. Look, if you are a, a utopian right yeah. and you think politics can solve all the human problems, right? We can cure poverty. We can cure racism. We can remake society into some utopian vision. Then you're going to invest all of your psychic energy. And if you don't believe in God, by the way, if you think we can make heaven on earth, right. you're going to invest your whole soul and being into political transformation. Hmm. It's a People religion. People on the right, In other it's words, religion. it's your exactly. religion. You're going to church. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And you become a religious zealot, uh, except uh, you've transferred that into politics. People on the right who believe in God, who go to church, who want to raise a family and have a job, don't eat, live, and breathe politics in the same way. And so we're not, people on the right are not as obsessive and therefore not as focused and therefore not as determined to doing all of these things. And so it's a natural disadvantage that the right always has against the left. Wow. That, that basic thing is such a, a crucial thing to get through to people. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people would start to have more hope if they just got that part right. There is like, there, you have to, we're at the level of just phenomenology. We're just describing the difference between left and right. We're not even evaluating yet. We're just describing this is how the left is, right? And, and we're not as obsessed with power. They are totally obsessed like a religion, right? Right. You know, so all the different kinds of machinations that are required for having control on campuses. I've seen that firsthand. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it was an interesting question to me. Why is it that the campuses are just left-wing seminaries? How did that get to be? I mean, these are supposedly public. 
well, even the private ones are now publicly funded de facto with, with student loans. Right. Um, so how does that get to be that way? I mean, I ask my students all the time and people I know if, if the political bias, maybe a more charitable way to say it would be orientation uh, was the opposite. Let's say it was exactly switched where it would be totally normal for a student to go through and never have a Democrat professor. And that would just be normal. And it would be instead of like um, whatever left wing thing it is, uh, you know, the little slogans and the little symbols and stuff that we're familiar with it. Let's say it was NRA and it was like Bible <laughs> study and it was, Right. It was, um, you know, stuff like that. Bible quotes, um, Second Amendment. <laughs> you know, it would be they would lose their mind. They would lose their mind. And we don't do that. We're nice. We walk through and we're very respectful. OK, yeah, I see. I see you're telling me that you think that marriage should be redefined. <laughs> I got it. I, I, I understand what that symbol means. Um, okay. I know I'm supposed to just be okay with that. If I had the opposite, uh, view, which is that it shouldn't be redefined on my door, I would be called the worst names in the world. I'd be driven out. I'd be hung from a tree like lynched. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's, it's interesting just at the level of description, uh, when you're talking about battling the administrative state, um, do you think that if, if it were the case now that he has four years of presidential experience under his belt and he's had some time to think, I'm not saying that's what he is doing. I'm not sure if he is reflecting. I hope he is. I would imagine he would be how I could have done things better. Do you think that Trump would, would learn like that basic thing that you just mentioned about the security clearances? Do you think he'd make that same mistake twice? This is the big question, right? And then, and, and uh, at this retreat in Florida with these Claremont people, that's one of the main things we were talking about there because, you know, we were there in Florida where Trump lives and also where DeSantis, who's, you know, a lot of people are talking about. And so, you know, which side are you on? And one of the questions everyone is asking is, well, did Trump learn anything, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, he talked about a lot of things. He didn't follow through on a lot of things. He, mm -hmm. he let himself get rolled in a lot of ways. He tolerated a lot of things he should have known how to put up with. Um, a, lot of, a lot of rookie stuff. But then again, lot, he, was, yeah. he was a rookie president. Right. I mean, how can you right. blame? Can't blame him right. for being a rookie. That's what he was. Right, right. I'm a little, personally, I'm a little ambivalent on that. On the one hand, he's a very smart guy. He does not, he's not a slave to conventional opinion. He thinks for himself. On the other hand, you know, it's not that easy for someone at that age to learn something new. Um, you know, some of these things you think he could have learned in the first year or two, and even after four years, he still had not learned them. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, it's hard. Maybe he was distracted say. because he was on Twitter the whole time. Yeah. Maybe being and, off you know, of Twitter has actually helped him actually sit down and think. That could be. That could be. Um, you know, he was part of it is you can't do this job by yourself, and he needs good advisors. And he did not demonstrate a very good capacity for picking good advisors. And, you know, that's part of it. It's not just making the right decisions yourself. It's 
It's being able to pick people that you can trust who will follow through on you. So if, you know, if he goes back in and just, you know, let's Jared tell him what to do, that's not going to be very helpful. So I don't know the answer to that question. You know, I'd like to think he is learning something. And, and if he decides to run, uh, it would be my hope that he would be better the second time around. Uh, I don't know if that is unintentionally getting into your chapter eight, but your chapter <laughs> eight is called the unfinished and unfinishable quest Jaffa's legacy and the future of America. Uh, you're interested in the future of America. And so was Jaffa. Yeah. So right. what does this book have to tell us, teach us about what does Jaffa have to teach us about what we're going through and, and what the future of America could look like or should look like. Right. So um, that's a good way to just uh, loop back to, to what I was saying at the beginning again. Um, all of these things we're talking about, like wh why does Trump have to learn um, all of these, these hard and difficult lessons? Shouldn't it be enough to just uh, right. go in as president, take your oath of office? Um, I mean, it wasn't this hard for, you know, uh, William McKinley, right, right, who didn't have to be <laughs> no. a, a master, uh, you know, a Machiavellian conniver and mm. deal with all of these things. The government has become so dysfunctional. It's become right. in, in many ways so post-constitutional that we have to think about. And so, I, again, we're now confronted with very fundamental questions, questions at the level of principle that go back to not just the institutions that the founders created as described in the Federalist Papers, but to the degree that those institutions had been corrupt and don't work anymore, we now have to go back to the underlying principles, right? right. Where did the idea of separation of powers come from? Why three, right? Where does that derive from the idea of consent? Jaffa used to say that consent and equality are two sides of the same coin. That's a very important lesson, but what does it mean, right? right. Right. Uh, what is the idea of popular sovereignty? What about this idea of nationalism? Why can't we just let the whole world in? You know, even if mm -hmm. we had the capacity, what does that do to shape the American character? What kind of people do you need to have constitutional self-government? What kind of virtues do you need? All of these are very basic questions that go back to Aristotle and Machiavelli and the relationship between Jerusalem and Athens. Go back to right. the ideas that Locke and Montesquieu taught. And it's not impossible to learn all this, but it's it's difficult and it takes some work and it helps to have a good teacher. And Jaffa was an amazing teacher. And so what I try to do in the book hmm. is get people to understand these underlying principles, which are now becoming so important. And I think Jaffa was an excellent teacher. And so I try to bring out the things that he has to say that can help us think through these issues. If Jaffa was in the fortunate position or maybe unfortunate position of advising Trump, what do you think he would have said to Trump if Trump was to listen to him or to have listened to him? Um, uh, well, let's see. So um, there's a lot to learn from Lincoln, both about what the country stands for at its highest. You know, what does the declaration mean? What is what, what is equality? What is equal rights? All of that is very important for understanding the high and noble purpose. And that's important, right? Because mm -hmm. you're not going to battle the left by descending to their level. You're only going to win by recalling America to its highest and best aspirations. But the other side of Lincoln, the side that the academics forget, the side that the intellectuals forget, which Jaffa never did forget, and certainly Lincoln didn't forget, is that you also need force. Politics is a combination of force and persuasion. And Trump, 
for all of his mean tweets, was not actually very good at this. He did not use all the power at his disposal. He did not fight back. He didn't, for instance, take security clearances away from people. He didn't fight back at the institutional level. He didn't use his executive authority. Lincoln never made that mistake, right? And so Trump, in a way, made the error of some intellectuals. He thought you could govern by tweeting, but it doesn't work that way, right? And so to understand the need for both reason and persuasion and rhetoric, you know, the, the, the high principles and also the low, <laughs> the need for power, the need for force, the need to play hardball. And the right combination of that is the essence of statesmanship. Hmm. Well, I wonder the older you get, the harder it is to take that in, I think, because people yeah. just become calcified. And, you know, so hopefully somebody's listening that's going to, you know, but you know, I think the leadership issue is a big deal, but also just what kind of people are we becoming and what's, what's our Absolutely. educational system doing to the average citizen? Yeah. And what do we do about that? Well, that's, <laughs> I, I, I try not to get no depressed. pressure, the pro- no pressure. The problem, the problem there is it's, it's by definition, a 20 and 30 year challenge, right? Because yeah. uh, if, you know, in a way, uh, the kids are already, uh, um, I don't, it's not the right word. I was going to say corrupted. I don't want to say that about kids, but mm-hmm. in a way their, their, their education, let's say is already corrupted and deficient if they get to the fifth and sixth grade without having gotten some basic thing. I mean, yep. the indoctrination that the CR people doing are now it, it's already down to kindergarten. So mm-hmm. if you've already spent the first three, four years of inculcating this horrible racist nonsense into kids, then you've already lost the battle before they've even gotten into junior high. And so, you know, this is a 20 and 30 year challenge because this has already, this has been going on for a long time and it's not going to be fixed overnight. So, you know, I wish I had, you know, it is encouraging. You know, you saw what happened in Virginia um, where the parents fought back against this critical race theory nonsense. And it was very encouraging to see at the local level, just sort of, spontaneous and on its own parents rising up against this indoctrination and abuse of their children. So it would be nice to see a lot more of that. Um, Yeah, it would be. uh, Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you spending the time with us today. Um, Well, thank you so much. It's been a a fascinating and wide ranging conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the good, I feel like I did my job and you certainly did your job in this this very important book. It's like I said, it's chocked full of details. I feel like I could keep coming back to it again and again. I've read some parts multiple times. Well, thank um, you, thank you. And I feel like I will come back to this for many years uh, as I try to grapple with uh, the man, Harry Jaffa, who he was and what he means to so many people. And he has touched so many people's lives. There's really only one other question that I wanted to ask you on my list here, mm-hmm. which is uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to ask because um, I'm not sure if I'll understand it, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. You mentioned that there are, well, in terms of Straussism, there, there's like East Coast and there's West Coast, and I'm, I'm still not sure I even understand what that is. I mean, I don't understand what has to do with the coasts. I know it's just yeah. where people live, but 
what why the, in the world would the coasts have anything to do with how you understand Joffa that's just an accident uh Strauss the, the geographical the, the geographical so the, yeah so there are these factions among the uh, among the strauss students and strauss was very right. influential he's got dozens now of first generation and now hundreds of second and third generation students the coastal thing is really because of jaffa because jaffa went out to california you know after the 64 Goldwater campaign. He, he went to Claremont, which is in California. And he was really the first of Strauss's students to go out to California, to the West Coast. And he was also one of the most influential, certainly the most sort of emphatic about applying political philosophy to America. The first to establish his own, in a way, school of thought among the Straussian students. And so that became just by sort of accident, West Coast Straussians. And then the East Coast were sort of everyone who... <laughs> wasn't part of the Jaffa side of the debate. And what it comes down to, it's, you know, we could spend hours discussing some of the finer elements of this is really uh, how important do you think the political part of political philosophy is? So for the Eastern Straussians who tend to be more academic, more intellectual, less interested in America, less interested in, in nuts and bolts politics, who think that the political just means, uh, in a way political almost means um, being prudent or careful, right? Or politique, right? So we study philosophy in a cautious way. So we're political in the sense of being, um, you know, careful or, or, you know, I'd even say sly or tricky about hiding what we're really doing. And, and it doesn't mean being interested in politics as such. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, being interested in America's institutions or the fate of the regime. Right. And for Jaffa, you know, uh, it was always very much focused on both understanding America and and being without any embarrassment a patriot. It meant that you know yeah. there's no reason a political philosopher in a good regime should not be a supporter of that regime. Now, being mm -hmm. a political philosopher in America is different from being a political philosopher in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. Right. Um, you know, being patriotic depends on <laughs> the, whether the regime is deserving of your patriotism. But so so that mm. part of the distinction is how interest how much should political philosophy focus on trying to understand and shape the political life of, of the country. So, so the West coast would be the Jaffa people and right. they're, they're the people that are like, we love America. We're tr properly understood. Right. Got to add that. Um, right. And we're, it's pretty clear he was pro Lincoln. Right. Yep. I mean, he had, yep different understanding of that through his years, I guess that switched or changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, in not terms of in Lincoln's relation to the founding, to the founders. Right. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. At first he thought that the founding was deficient and Lincoln needed to complete it or elevate it. And then he thought that everything he thought was missing was already there. He had just overlooked it. You might say. Gotcha. And so then the East coasters tend to yeah. look at, at texts and books you know, in a very abstract academic way, they tend to be sort of ivory tower intellectuals. Some of them, I mean, you know, all of this is a little bit of a generalization, of course, mm -hmm. but, but a lot of the East Coast Straussians, the non-Jaffa Straussians tend to be much less interested in day-to-day -day politics. Um, uh, okay. um, much are, they, are they less patriotic or? Well, you know, um, I'm hesitant to, you know, um, just, just talk, yeah. quite, quite a few are not Trump supporters. Quite a few are more uh, on the left. 
Um, uh, would they fly American flags? Would they? I would say they're much less inclined to fly American flags or wear an American flag lapel pin by and large. <laughs> there are there are some I've, I've heard that there are some East Coast Straussians who are actually pro Trump, which kind of surprises me. And and let me just let me just add one little Interesting. thing. All of this all of this is getting um, a little bit now, now that the schools have become sort of the ground. A lot of the ground has shifted with Trump, let me say. I mean, okay. these distinctions were meaningful for a while. Now that Jaffa has passed away and some of the other first generation Straussians have passed away and the geographical ground has shifted a little bit, all of this is, is getting so complicated and mixed up together. It's, it's not as meaningful as it used to be in general. Did, how did Jaffa feel about the Second Amendment and like gun ownership and stuff? Did, did, you ever, did he ever talk about that? Um, I know he's from New York he, and New York people, it's right. kind of hard to figure out what they think about it. Urban people typically right. for more restrictions. Yeah, he was a, a strong theoretical supporter of the Second Amendment. I'm not sure that he ever fired a gun in his whole life, but he, I mean, a lot of people Didn't in Claremont me. are very pro-gun. The Claremont Institute's very pro-gun. You know, the Claremont okay. Institute has this thing called the Publius Fellows Program where we bring kids out and teach them the principles of the founding. And one of the things we do is take them to the gun range. And the oh, ones who've never okay. fired a gun, we teach them gun safety. Uh, mm-hmm. And so all of Joffa's, virtually all of Joffa's students are, are gun nuts. Uh, <laughs> although he himself, I think, probably never, never pulled the trigger himself. <laughs> That's fascinating, that right there. And his religious life, was he an agnostic or what was he like? No, he called he... himself a Jew. Um, okay. uh, although he married a, a, a Protestant. His wife, Margie, was, was a Protestant from Missouri. Um, he mm-hmm. was not a, a, a religious, he did not attend religious services. But he was, in a way, he was intellectually, he was fascinated with the question of religion. He understood absolutely the importance of religious sentiment and religious faith for healthy politics. So uh, there's a famous line from uh, Winston Churchill, who belonged to the Church of England, but didn't really enjoy going to services. And he once used an architectural joke and said, "Uh, I'm a flying buttress. I support the church from the outside. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and a flying buttress is one of these uh, things in medieval churches where they keep the roof from collapsing. And so uh, Jaffa was kind of a flying buttress of Judaism. He, he supported it from the outside. <laughs> I gotcha. You know, he, he, he does sound like just very well versed in Christianity. And so oh, yeah. he, it'd be easy to just mistake him for a Christian. For example, uh, there's a quote on your page 297 on the postscript where he uses the term, well, I'll just read the quote. uh, The quote is, my feeling is that today we are somewhere near a terminal process in the history of Western civilization, not just in the history of this Republic in which a dark night of the soul could very well be the fate of the world. If certain cataclysms with which we are threatened to come to pass. Uh, I didn't bother looking up the date of that. I don't know if he was talking about nuclear war or something, but um, he, he didn't. Well, in part, he was talking about nuclear war. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was, I think, uh, late 89 or 90 thereabouts. Okay. Well, the term dark night of the soul is like a technical term in spiritual Christian spiritual formation circles where, you know, 
uh, and people who have, have gone through a dark night of the soul know what it is um, generally. It's, it's where it feels like God is absent. God is hiding. Yeah. And you're wondering where God is. God's supposed to be present, but he's not there. So it's interesting. He uses this theological language. Obviously, he does believe that. It just feels like he does believe God exists, but I don't know what he thinks about the person of Jesus, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of indications in his writing and his teaching that he does think that there's a kind of providential um, role in history. He, okay. he, he was so impressed by the kind of the miracle of the founding, and I don't think he hesitated to call it a kind, con- and that's a common phrase, the miracle of Philadelphia. And Jaffa believed in that too. I mean, he, think, he thinks what the founders did was so extraordinary. And he thinks the whole development of Western civilization showed not historical determinism in the Marxist sense, but this idea, which has always been very common in America, that this nation is blessed. Um, and he did think that the hand of a kind of providential destiny could be seen in Western civilization. And also his idea that um, we can never give up hope um, because we don't know, um, because the, the, the role of human freedom and the role of providence might always intervene to uh, snatch success from what appears to be defeat. And so, uh, you know, I guess you could say he certainly believed at least in Aristotle's God, which is the idea that there is um, a moral purpose in the universe. His, yeah. his opinions on Jesus I don't know. I'd have to uh, say he didn't. I don't know that he didn't had any strong about opinions. About, he didn't talk about, uh, but he certainly had a lot to say, and certainly had immense respect for and immense intellectual interest in uh, Christianity and its importance uh, for for Western civilization. So it's not like he made comments uh, one way or another, pro Jesus or against Jesus. It's not like he said highlighted, oh, this is something Jesus said. You want to really pay attention to this. This is really important, and he, but he never, the, the, he never said the line, what Jesus said. There is a bunch of BS. He never said something like that. Well, no, he would okay. never have said that. The the line from Jesus. I mean, he 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 quoted the Gospels all the time. The line from Jesus that he found most interesting as a scholar, uh, as a scholar of, of you know the philosophical origins of America, is the line about render unto Caesar, mm-hmm. because he says in a way that it, it took two thousand years. But that, in a way, is the origins of Jefferson's Declaration of, of Religious and Civil Liberty, the separation of church and state to allow both religion and politics to have their proper spheres, uh, respecting the autonomy and the dignity of each, but, but uh, recognizing the limits of each. And so politics flourishes best when, when um, you don't try to use it to impose religious orthodoxy, and religion flourishes best. Uh, when you don't try to seize the leaders of, of political power. Um, and that separation, in a way, he thinks was prefigured in that famous statement by Jesus. That makes a lot of sense. I, I hesitate to uh, bring up this other podcast that I have listened to <laughs> before. Um, I, 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 I was, just to get an anti-Trump perspective, uh, was listening to The Bulwark for a while. <laughs> and I, I tell you, I stopped listening to them when they, I, I heard some comments that they made. I think it was 
about you in particular and about Claremont. And I, I listened carefully to those episodes and I, I found them to be so utterly irresponsible, just painfully irresponsible that I stopped listening to that podcast. I mean, they lost me as a listener and I thought that they had some interesting things to say before that, but, but, um, I don't know if you wanted to comment on anything like that, but I just thought, you know, how much work it is to read these books and put out this publication Claremont review of books. And I just couldn't believe just this, the shallowness is how I would put it, but it just seemed like it was personal. It wasn't based on anything. Yeah. You know, in a way it's flattering. Uh, yeah. The Bulwark does, does not have a terribly big audience and somehow they, they think that they're going to leverage their own uh, popularity uh, and readership by, by going on this vendetta against us. And it's become a real sort of obsession with them. It doesn't really yeah. bother us. We, we find it kind of amusing. I mean, as you say, it's not all that serious. It's, it's often, you know, not in, in very good faith. Uh, it's often quite contentious. It, yeah. it, when I was listening to it, it was helpful to hear some of the details of things I didn't pay close attention to just because I wasn't really worried about it. But, you know, they would pay really close attention to things that really annoyed them. But it was <laughs> it was just like I thought it was kind of I always thought it was a little odd to call it the something that's synonymous with the wall, <laughs> which which it's just basically an anti-Trump podcast and well they got a they got a lot of mileage out of it i guess he gave them a lot of uh you know material but but uh it seems like well at some point you gotta you're gonna have to move on to other things (laughs) we we just keep doing our work and if they want to be obsessed with with biting our ankles that's fine (laughs) okay well i feel like i have a pretty deep sense of what this book is about, what you're about, what Claremont is about, because while I know a lot of you and I've been there myself for a long time and I know I've met these people, I've seen it. Um, Jaffa doesn't seem like a racist to me. You don't seem like a racist. Uh, and I've, I've seen how the left throws terms like that around and they don't seem to know how to define them. And so anyway, sorry for bringing that up, but um, it wasn't even on my list. It was just kind of like <laughs> in the list of things that's not on my list. But um, I, I highly recommend this book, The Soul, the Soul of Politics. Subtitle again is Harry V. Jaffa and the Fight for America by Glenn Elmers. Two N's on Glenn, two L's and Elmers. And uh, it's got a forward by Larry Arn who's the president of Hildale college. It's got blurbs on the back from uh, justice Clarence Thomas. I've heard of him. (laughs) Michael Anton Hadley Arcus, Charles Kessler. Uh, We thank you for coming on Dr. Elmers. Thank you so much. It's really been, really been wonderful. I enjoyed it.